0: Welcome to the Hertie School of Governance. The
1: Hertie School...
0: School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. As a School of Governance, we see our mission in fostering these important discussions. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. Dear students, ladies and gentlemen, it has become a very nice tradition that the Monday after the Munich Security Conference, the Hertie School of Governance organizes a follow-up event where we bring a little bit of that Munich Security Conference spirit to this very location, to you, the students, and the Hertie community. Now, it is extremely hard to get that spirit to the city of Berlin, because for those of you who have attended the Munich Security Conference, it's a very special kind of environment. It's the type of environment where you head from one speech by Angela Merkel um, to an event uh, uh, with a foreign minister uh, from Egypt, and in walking, you're pushed away from, by a bodyguard who had some kind of uh, unidentifiable Asian defense minister, and you stumble backwards and fall into a conversation between John Kerry and Christine Lagarde. This is the Munich Security Conference. Now, what we do here is not as dense, but we have a fantastic panel tonight to share the insights of the Munich Security Conference edition 2019 with you. I'm delighted, uh, Ambassador Burns, dear Nick, that you are here tonight. You are an outstanding expert on transatlantic security issues on Germany. And uh, Wolfgang will introduce you in more detail. I'm delighted, Director Schwarzer, liebe Daniela, that you're here tonight as well uh, as the uh, discussant of Nick's intervention. And uh, the entire event will be hosted and moderated by our very own Wolfgang Eschinger. I would like to say a few words about you, Wolfgang, tonight. You have headed the uh, Munich Security Conference since 2008 as chairman, and what you have achieved is something unique, truly unique. This event has become a reference point once per year for the discussion on what happens in the global security discussion. Where else do heads of state speak freely in a brief statement, not these lengthy speeches, 10, 15 minutes, and you know how hard you negotiate that these speeches stay short, to an audience and everyone listens. When Angela Merkel spoke, and she delivered an outstanding speech, Christine Lagarde was sitting in the audience, the Ukrainian president was sitting in the audience, Ivanka Trump was sitting in the audience, many other people were sitting there and listening, and they truly listen, and listening to each other, and talking to each other is probably the biggest achievement of the Munich Security Conference in this very small, dense setting I just described in the Bayerische Hof. Ambassador Ischinger, dear Wolfgang, you are professor at the Hertie School of Governance. You chair and direct the Center for International Security Policy. And with that center, we co-host the event tonight I would also like to single out Tobias Bunde, who is a postdoctoral researcher at that center and who is the author of the or a lead author of the Munich Security Report, which is the content behind the Munich Security Conference. And very often you have events. But here you have an event that's also prepared through a very influential think tank report, policy report that is widely read across the globe. In a nutshell. This is what the Hertie School is all about. Research, practice, great people, great discussions, an international audience, substantive policy discussions. I look forward to a great evening, and I welcome all of you to this event. And now I turn the floor to Wolfgang, who's not wearing an EU hoodie today, Um, but we like the tie as well, Wolfgang. The floor is yours.
1: I was actually thinking about putting on that hoodie, but one shouldn't uh, overdo things, I guess. Good evening, everybody. Thank you, uh, Henrik, for this uh, very gracious introduction of the event and and of our two, two speakers tonight. I also want to say uh, good evening to our ambassadorial uh, guests and colleagues. Um, and um, let me first say, that I am really tired. <laughs> this has been a pretty tough week for Tobias, my team. And uh, uh, the team is all, all in all about three dozen people. Uh, uh, and the core, of course, is the people who conceptualize and write um, and draft. But there is also, of course, lots of work about um, organization, um, security. And when you have a situation where we knew about a week ago that, uh, for example, Bibi Netanyahu had to cancel his participation. And then literally 48 hours before the conference uh, was beginning and our, the, the, the agenda, the program, had already been printed in its final version, then we had this phone call from, uh, fr- from Israel uh, saying that Benny Gantz, who is the challenger to uh, the current Israeli Prime Minister, that he thought uh, he might catch the next plane and come to Munich, could he speak? So you have these last minute arrangements, which sometimes uh, you know, cost you your sleep. And <laughs> I have to say, uh, it cost me my sleep, but we managed. Um, before I, I introduce the two speakers, just One or two more critical uh, comments. Uh, The Munich Security Conference has grown over the the last decade or so substantially. Uh, One reason for that, I think, is uh, that the number of crises that we're confronted with has grown. Uh, If everything were fine, the Munich Security Conference wouldn't be such an attractive place. so it's the world out there that makes people flock to, uh, to Munich. And our hope has been, is, and will be, of course, to try to make people who normally wouldn't want to sit on stage together or sit around a, a table together, to, to um, encourage them to do that in Munich. When I uh, concluded the conference yesterday at lunchtime, I said, and I just want to repeat that, you know, it's great to see that some people actually do that, get together in Munich and talk about their unresolved difficulties. And I praised the courage of President Vucic and President Taci. Um, it, it wasn't normal under Munich circumstances that if you have continued issues of, of this, uh, magnitude, that you would sit there and talk about them. And I thought that was great. And I, I, without naming other names, I can tell you that efforts to have others with similar or even greater difficulties to come and sit together were not successful. And I find it uh, frustrating that we have too many leaders coming to Munich to simply accuse somebody else for what they are doing to us. Uh, and refusing flatly to sit with that other leader on stage. Uh, So it's always a continuing battle. Uh, You want, of course, to offer uh, Munich as a platform to everybody, and I would continue to defend our decision to offer this platform also to the foreign minister of Iran, for example. Uh, But it would, of course, be so much more desirable to have, say, the foreign minister of Iran debate with the foreign minister of Saudi Arabia about why they can't make peace, or what it would take to make peace, for example. So it's simply to say, it's not simply just organizing a conference and inviting people. It's, it's actually pretty hard work. Um, I'm really delighted to have two of the smartest Foreign policy thinkers here tonight as as panelists. Nick Burns, among foreign, poli- foreign policy uh, uh, aficionados, doesn't really need an introduction. He served as Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs. Uh, before that, he was a very distinguished U.S. ambassador to NATO. He was a U.S. ambassador to Greece. He was on the NSC staff, etc., etc., etc. So, a seasoned uh, and one of the most prominent uh, American um, uh, foreign affairs specialists. And of course, for the last number of years, he has uh, uh, served as a professor at the Kennedy School at, uh, at Harvard University. Uh, Daniela Schwarzer needs even less of an introduction here in Berlin, because Daniela has uh, passed jobs included not only her, her current position as uh, head of DGAP, the German Society for, for Foreign Policy. Uh, she was previously with the German Marshall Fund, running their office here in Germany or in Europe, and, uh, and also, of course, for many years with SVP, um, the large German government-funded, government-supported uh, think tank here in Berlin. So a warm welcome to both of you. And what we'll do now is the following. We have now approximately almost exactly one hour. We need to terminate this by 7.50. So I would now invite Nick uh, to offer his initial remarks, followed by a comment or two from uh, Daniela. And then we will, uh, uh, we will engage, we'll try to engage with you. So think about the kinds of questions you want to ask. It's not it doesn't need to be focused on what happened in munich this last weekend this is supposed to be a, a wide-ranging discussion so if you have questions about any other aspects of uh, the future of the world or of international relations or of the europe uh, or of europe uh, don't hesitate to uh, to ask it tonight before you start speaking nick i thought by way of sort of framing this discussion, I wanted to give you a copy of this. This is a book with the... Today, you would think this this, this comes from the last century. Uh, the title was Towards Mutual Security, and it was produced uh, on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the Munich Security Conference, five years ago. Uh, there are uh, interesting articles by many American, uh, even Russian, German authors about the last 50 years of foreign policy. When I look at this volume today, uh, and when I try to think about the discussions we had as we put this volume together five years ago, we're living in a totally different world. There's no one around Uh, There was no one around in Munich this weekend who spoke about towards mutual security. Uh, I think there were a lot of people who spoke about our security and their security and what we're going to be doing against each other rather than together with each other. So um, this is not a a very uh, happy development, uh, but that's exactly why we're here and why we need to talk about it. So I want to give you this this volume, uh, Nick. And please, uh, take the floor.
2: (laughs) Wolfgang, thank you very much. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's such a great pleasure to be here in this beautiful capital city. I want to thank, first, um, Wolfgang for his friendship over many decades, actually for the fact that he is one of the premier diplomats, not just in Germany, but in the world today. And he is running, and it was obvious this weekend to all of us in in Munich, it is the most important security conference in the world. For anyone who cares about global peace and justice and stability and this very difficult transatlantic relationship that, unfortunately, we have now Munich is the place to be, and I congratulate Wolfgang, and all of it, and Tobias, and everyone associated with a marvelous conference—one that depressed us this weekend, in many ways, but it also urged us on to do better as we seek a, a solid transatlantic relationship. I certainly want to thank the president of the Hertie School, Henrik Enderlein, uh, who has done so much as a professor and now as the president to build this school. We had a conversation the two of us today about how we, the Hertie School and the Harvard Kennedy School, where I'm a professor, might begin to make a bridge across the Atlantic Ocean because we need that kind of a bridge today, given the state of transatlantic affairs. I have such enormous respect for Daniela Schwarzer uh, and the role she's playing at the German Council on Foreign Relations and her knowledge of us, we Americans, as well as, uh, Europe I'm looking forward to a good conversation, and I can't leave out someone who has been, in many ways a mentor to me, uh, and who is a human bridge, and I'm not going to age him,'ll he, it's okay if I say this, who for 60 years, has been the human bridge between Deutschland and the United States Professor Karl Kaiser. Please join me in thanking him for what he's doing.. I am joined here tonight by my wife, Libby, uh, who's in the front row. And we are here to see our daughter, Caroline, who's in the front row because Caroline works in Berlin for Wayfair. If you don't know Wayfair, Google it. I wasn't asked to say this, but it's one of our up and coming uh, young companies in the United States. And Caroline's helping to build the business in Deutschland and all of Europe, so we're proud of her. Uh, And I'm very happy to be here. Um, I have brief remarks because I want to hear what Daniela has to say about Munich. And then we want to get to your questions. But I would begin with this. Uh, We are meeting at a time of a widening division between Europe and the United States. And it gives me no pleasure or comfort in saying that. But it's our objective reality. If you were not in Munich this weekend, if you didn't watch the German Chancellor Angela Merkel give her extraordinary speech on Saturday morning, Google it tonight and watch it, because as a non-German, but as someone who's always admired Chancellor Merkel and her contributions both to Germany, Europe, and our alliance, it was extraordinary and it was, it was compelling to see her, as I saw deconstruct the elements of Trumpism, of the America First policy, which I personally believe is deeply misguided of President Donald Trump and the candor with which she spoke. And I thought even Wolfgang, for, for Merkel, the passion uh, with which she spoke, was, it was very impressive to an American audience to hear that. What I heard her say was that to have a healthy transatlantic relationship, we have to have respect for each other. No name calling, no nicknames. And when we have disagreements, as we inevitably do, in any relationship, we have them privately, not publicly. And we don't try to score points politically for ourselves in the way that we criticize the other person across the Atlantic Ocean. I heard a chancellor talking about Germany's deep conviction that the European Union is not only here to stay, but ought to have a partner in the United States of America who will respect it and support it and help it to develop. I heard a a German chancellor saying that NATO is still vital for the peoples of Europe, the 500 million people here in Europe, as well as the 325 million people in the United States of America. And I heard a German chancellor saying that enlightenment values and reason and a faith in science And an ability to think that we can conquer our problems together is the way we should proceed. It was the kind of address you would have heard from George H.W. Bush or Bill Clinton or Barack Obama. And you certainly would have heard this kind of address from Harry Truman or Dean Acheson or George Marshall. The great insight of that generation of Americans, the founders of the NATO alliance, who supported the coal and steel community and the Treaty of Rome and the common market, and Maastricht, and the Euro, and Schengen, was that we Americans, after two vicious wars in Europe in the 20th century, we could only be secure ourselves if we were here in Europe, with Europe, supporting Europe. And I just felt, listening to the chancellor, we Americans have drifted so far, at least in the last two years, from that vision that was so important for us for the last 70 years. In Munich, we heard another voice, that of our Vice President Mike Pence, dismissive of NATO, treating the European Union as, in the words of President Trump, a foe, a competitor. An embrace by our president of Viktor Orban, of Mohammed bin Salman, of Kim Jong Un, but absolute, persistent, caustic criticism of our true friend, Angela Merkel, our true friend, Emmanuel Macron, our true friend, Theresa May, our true friend, Justin Trudeau. I mean, think of the symbolism of the last year alone, of the Quebec G7 summit, of the NATO summit, of what happened at Munich, name-calling against our best friends from the American side. I heard from the Pence speech in Munich, diktats to Europe. It's one thing for the United States to leave the Iran nuclear deal. I thought it was deeply misguided. I was President Bush and Secretary Condoleezza Rice as Iran negotiator. I worked very closely with the German government and the French and British governments to try to build the P5 and Germany coalition, to try to engage the Iranians, to try to work towards the nuclear deal that the German government, the EU, President Obama were able to manage. It's one thing to leave it. It was misguided. But then to say to the Europeans, you too must leave it. We demand that you leave it. And how dare you Europeans interfere with the American sanctions on you, the secondary sanctions. To me, that was part of this foreign policy by diktat that we heard on Saturday morning. And it really goes deeper than that, because if you read the speech of Secretary of State Mike Pompeo at the beginning of December in Brussels, the capital of Europe, he urged European countries to be more nationalist, to embrace their own inner sovereignty when anyone, I don't have to tell a room full of Germans this, or a room full of French citizens, or Italian citizens, The European Union is one of the great stories, positive stories, of my lifetime as a non-European because you've put aside an infatuation with nationalism and sovereignty and borders, and you've built Schengen and Maastricht. and of course it's imperfect, but I'm convinced when the history of our time, the latter part of the 20th century, the first part of this century is written, the emergence of the European Union is one of the great stories, positive stories, hopeful stories, and that's how most Americans see it. But that's not how our leadership currently sees it. What we have in America First is an absolute and fundamental attack on what made America great. I don't mean to be arrogant in saying what made America great. We all have great countries. Germany's a great country. If we have been great, it's because of four foundation stones built since the end of the Second World War very similar to the foundation stones that have built modern Germany. We believe in alliances. We believe in NATO and the US-EU relationship, number one. Number two, we believe in a global trading system that is fair, that has a leveling aspect to it because it's lifted millions of boats. It's made us all since the 1950s and 60s more prosperous and more stable and more tied to each other. On the first one, President Trump is absolutely denying NATO, has become the leading critic of NATO. On the second, not interested in the US-EU free trade agreement, not interested in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, not interested in NAFTA, and on and on. And after the first foundation stone of alliances and the second of trade, of course, we Americans have always felt it's important to support democracy It's important to support Europeans trying to build democratic states. But as I appreciate the politics of Europe, and I think I've been in eight European countries since last June, and I appreciate the politics of my own country, we see a rising tide of anti-democratic populism within our societies. It's happening in the United States. It's happening to sometimes dramatic impact in Europe. You have very important European parliamentary elections coming up. Uh, this spring and this summer. And it's very important that we Americans stand with small d, Democrats in Europe, against the anti-democratic populists. Marine Le Pen, Geert Wilders, if I can say here, Alternative for Deutschland, Viktor Orban, Mr. Salvini. These are the people who would take us back and really obliterate everything that's been achieved since the late 1940s in our transatlantic community. Donald Trump has not said one word in two years in support of democracy, in opposition to the anti-democratic populace. We know that Steve Bannon is circulating Europe as an American voice, speaking perhaps for the President of the United States, trying to build support for the anti-democratic populace. And we see this embrace of our president for those people, and this dishonorable, objectionable treatment of the German chancellor by the American president. We have fallen to new depths. And I guess my takeaway from, Europe, from Munich this weekend is we must repair this widening breach across the Atlantic. Donald Trump overturning everything that made America your friend and your ally over the last 70 years. And the finer foundation stone, of course, is immigration and refugees. These are sensitive issues. But we Americans have always been an immigrant nation. Each one of us has an immigrant past. Every single person has a story. And we've always tried to keep our door open to refugees. And we have 65 million refugees and internally displaced people in the world today. And yet the United States has said, Instead of taking 70,000 refugees this year, which President Obama had slated in terms of the budget, we'll take about 19,000 refugees. Taking, instead of taking 100,000 legal immigrants into our country, we may take half or less. So we are chipping away at what made America great. There was a positive voice. There were actually many American, positive American voices in Munich this weekend, and one of them was Joe Biden our former vice president. He took the stage a couple of hours after Chancellor Merkel and Vice President Pence. Uh, Wolfgang asked me to introduce him. I did. And in my introduction, I just said there's a contrast, striking contrast, about this kind of political leader who believes in openness and democracy and alliance versus the government in place today. What did we hear from Vice President Biden? He said that 70% of the American people in polls believe in NATO. And our polls are consistently showing high levels of American public support, even in our millennial community that did not live through the Cold War for the NATO alliance. He said he deeply believed in the European Union as a partner of the United States. He said he deeply believed in trade with the European Union. And of course, he's someone, along with President Obama, who believes that the United States must return to the the Paris Climate Change Agreement, and that we must also work for nuclear arms reductions at a time when the INF Treaty has dissolved before our very eyes. There is another America. And At the end of his speech, he said, we will be back. And I believe him. And my one message that I wanted to leave this German audience with, largely German audience, with tonight is, There is another America. The majority of Americans believe in science, and logic, and international engagement, and doing something about climate, and supporting NATO, and supporting the EU. Look at the Chicago Council poll that came out in September of this year. Look at the Pew Global poll that also came out this year. We have a majority. We just need to get them to the polls in November 2020. They came to the polls this past November. And now we have a Democratic majority in the House of Representatives. And Nancy Pelosi came to Munich. There were over 50 members of our Congress there. And that was another bright spot of the Munich conference because I saw our members of Congress, Republican and Democrat, essentially saying, we are here to support NATO. We are here to reassure Europeans we will not walk away from NATO. We will not walk away from the European Union. So that was a hopeful sign, Daniela, as you think about commenting on my remarks, and Wolfgang. Let me leave you with this. Wolfgang and Tobias and the Munich staff challenged us with a very well-written substantive strategy paper at the beginning of the conference in a liberal world order that is fracturing. How do we pick up the pieces? Who picks up the pieces? Please believe in us. Please have patience with us. But I think that Germany and Europe are going to have to pick up a lot of those broken pieces over the next two years. Those of us on the outside of the American government will help. And we hope that in two years, America will turn back towards (laughs) Europe and towards alliance with Europe. As a representative of Harvard University, we're very proud that our, at our commencement in late May of this year, our commencement speaker, who will, give, who will be given an honorary degree, is Chancellor Angela Merkel. And we're very proud about that because in many ways, and I know she doesn't like to hear this, what she expressed on Saturday morning, she's leading the West in giving us faith in our human values of democracy and human rights and human freedom. She's the one speaking up for them, against Putin, against Crimea. And whether you agree or disagree with her politically is immaterial. Speaking for the German people and for Europeans, she's expressing the kind of values that we all believe in. It is an um, extraordinary fact, and I shared this with Henrik, that she will be the fifth German leader to speak at the Harvard commencement since 1955. We normally have an American speaker or an American university. Sometimes every few years we'll have an international speaker. No country has had five of its leaders over 60 years speak. I think it speaks to the fact that Germany has been the center of the American mind and the American imagination since the late 1940s that we have recreated our relationship with you since the Second World War, that we have this incredible bond. And that's why Adenauer came to Harvard in 1959. It's why Willy Brandt came in the 1960s. It's why Richard von Feisacher came in 1987. It's why Helmut Kohl came in 1990. And it's why Angela Merkel will come to Harvard uh, in 2019 to represent our common values and our common future. And we are looking forward to that. She will receive an honorary degree that another famous global leader received on September 6, 1943, Winston Churchill. He had been in both Quebec for one of the wartime summits of the Allied leaders and then to Washington to see President Roosevelt. He came up by train. He was given an honorary degree. He gave an extraordinary speech, which you can Google. It's long. But in the middle of it, he said something very important to the American people that I think is the message to Americans today. And this was at a turning point in the war. It was after Stalingrad. It was after El Alamein. It was after the Battle of Sicily. And just before the surrender of the, in fact, two days, before the surrender of the Italian government on September 8, 1943, in a, in a way, Britain, which had held power for about 150 years as the greatest global power, was handing the baton of leadership to the American people in the middle of the Second World War. And here's what Churchill said to the young Americans in Harvard Yard. He said, the price of greatness is responsibility. The price of greatness is responsibility. If you want to be a great power in the world, then you have to care about the world. It can't be America first and America only. It has to be, especially in a symbiotic 21st century, America with the rest of the world. George H. W. Bush, whom we lost in December, great friend of Germany and of German unification, He believed that. Bill Clinton believed that. George W. Bush believed that. Barack Obama believed it. And I'll conclude with what Churchill said beyond that incredible line that you need to be responsible. Churchill said to the Americans, one cannot rise to be in many ways the leading country in the civilized world without being involved in its problems, without being convulsed by its agonies, without being inspired by its causes. I would submit to you that America will be that country again. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you for, for this speech. There will be, I'm sure, many, many questions. But first, we listen to Daniela for her comment.
3: What a challenge and what a pleasure to follow on such an inspiring speech, Nick, which went far beyond Munich. It was, I think, a, an optimistic look towards the future. And I think we are all with you in you, you asking us to be strategically patient and to wait for the pendulum swinging to the transatlantic side again in the United States. But my task is to comment about what happened in Munich over the past three days. And I think let me start with the sense I got of people's expectations when they came. And transatlantic relations for a number of years now are the key issue that people think about before they come and discuss all weekend long. And I would say there was a change compared to last year. And that was probably that last year, Europeans, Germans, we were all anxious, listening to the messages we would get, all waiting for matters to speak, and hoping there would be a firm commitment to NATO. And at that point, still believing that Trump is not America, definitely, but Trump is not even the whole administration. Since then, a few things have happened. A few people have left office. And there is a huge disillusionment in Europe about who calls the shots at DC, at least for probably the next two years to come. And so, you know, when I saw people listening to Pence's speech, which you have quoted, and there were very hollow and shallow commitments to transatlantic relations, this didn't move anyone. But what moved many people was indeed the very high, the very important number of congressmen and congresswomen who came, some of them newly elected, open to listen, open to talk, open to engage with all kinds of audiences that you get in Munich. You get the corporate sector. You get the political sector. You get the think tank world. And those were very important conversations, I believe. And it's a chance for Europeans to rethink transatlantic relations, which we've been doing since Trump came into office, to look for those we can talk to and to identify those we can have a constructive discussion with, not only to understand what's happening in D.C. and to think forward what may be happening, because that's a big task in uh, think tank work, working on transatlantic relations for a number of years now, to really think in scenarios and to think through the worst case. And the worst case would indeed be that, at some point, the US either withdraws or delegitimizes NATO. There are many ways. You don't even have to formally withdraw. But to some, in some way or another, to undermine the credibility of the security guarantees that NATO is to us. And so I would say, if I look back at the past three days and the role that transatlantic relations played, it has been as important as it has been over the past years. But there was a different tone, in particular among Europeans who discussed what they saw. Disillusionment, but looking out for others to talk to. Now, of course, the debate on Europe's role in security matters in defense and transatlantic relations has also considerably changed over the past year. So in, at the end of the year 2017, the European Union embarked on something that we call PESCO, Structured Cooperation in the Field of Defense. Not at all a new idea, but an idea which only got decided upon and came into the implementation phase, I would say, because of the trigger that Trump is to our own thinking about how we can do more for our own security. We saw over the past two years how cautious Europeans have become when they phrase the ambition they have. I remember in 2018 at the MSC, there was quite a bit of talk on strategic autonomy, much less prominently so this time, though we have advanced in the conceptual thinking how to get there. But we have learned, also from our friends in DC, that we shouldn't posted on the wall saying we are going there because we know that we won't be there even if we do the best we can now in 15 or 20 years, not before. And it's, I think, hardly anyone's goal in the EU today to actually turn our back on the US because it's not possible for us. And so I guess the Europeans have become far more cautious in describing the ambition and feel a huge pressure on delivering. And I would say, on that piece, Munich was revealing in the sense of showing us where we are. We did not see the big Franco-German impulse that people thought might be there, because Emmanuel Macron had to withdraw and didn't participate, rather at short notice. And that's what people still expect in Europe, that there is this couple moving things forward. And we know about all the quacks in that relationship over the past month and years, despite the signing of the new bilateral treaty, the Aachen Treaty. Now, I participated personally in a number of side events on European defense, all very well done and all very well you know, thought through. However, the message that one goes away with is always the same. We know exactly why things don't move forward. We have identified the differences in our strategic cultures. We have identified the practical problems we need to deal with. We know exactly what we could be doing with this or that amount of money. And we know by now that it is our prime task to actually integrate this all from day one on into NATO structures. So this is all done. But what we lack at this point, in my view, is the political ambition to actually overcome the obstacles we have to cooperation. So things are moving forward. I'm not pessimistic. But I do believe that in order to make something like a European defense pillar with a NATO really substantial, and there is a big political question coming up in the next month, and that's the funding of it. So the idea to integrate this into the multi-annual financial framework of the European Union, this requires political leadership. And we need more. We need more of Merkel's speeches. We need more answers to that one. We need more conversations. And we need a very strong political will to move ahead. So if I look at the plenary sessions, I would say Europe didn't perform at its best, except for probably our own chancellor, who who showed a very, very strong commitment. And I totally agree with uh, the way you described not only the substance and the ambition of her speech, but also the reactions in the room. Standing ovations at a Munich security conference for a speech of the German German chancellor is, I don't know whether it has ever happened, Wolfgang, but it's definitely a very rare thing to have. And I'm underlining this once again, although Nick spoke about it, because I think it tells you something about the mood of the people in the room. People are craving for this kind of signal. They want to hear this ambition. They want to have something to work on. They want a direction and then implement. Um, so it was a, an important signal. Now, because I know we will have lots of questions and, and uh, comments from your side, let me just conclude by my take on who will pick up the pieces of the puzzle, which was, was the brilliant title of uh, the report. I think there are a number of people or countries or governments who actually want to pick up the pieces of the puzzle. But they know that it's not about putting the same puzzle together again, But because if we take the puzzle as a picture for order, the international order or the European order, we know that we will have to reshape a few of those pieces of the puzzle and somewhat create a new picture. And we may have to add a few more pieces, um, because other perspectives are out there as well. So there is a huge political endeavor in front of us. We want to. We know exactly, and Nick uh, outlined it in a, in a fascinating way. We know exactly want, what we want to maintain and keep and protect our value base, the idea to actually deal with conflict in institutions, and to negotiate rather than to get into struggles and fights and sanctions and whatever. Um, But at this point, I think we need a few more Munich security conferences and about the same amount of side events to figure out how we're going to do this. Thank you very much.
1: Great. Thank you very much, Daniela. Um, Before... Turning to your questions, we have now approximately half an hour left. Let me me use my, I hope not misuse, my privilege here as the moderator to ask one question each of both of you. And I'll I'll start with Nick because he was the first speaker. Um, We will be back is what Joe Biden said. My question is... What will be the atmosphere, what will be the circumstances on both sides of the Atlantic when, you know, you will be back or when uh, the more uh, transatlantic-friendly kinds of Americans are going to uh, be in the leadership again? My question is this. Uh, Do we not need to reckon with the fact that neither on the European side, nor on the American side, uh, we can go back to where we used to be. Um, Daniela has just mentioned, uh, you know, there are these small, but uh, incremental changes in in Europe, for example, regarding defense, which probably wouldn't have happened if the pressure uh, or the uncertainties uh, from the other side of the Atlantic hadn't come. So. My question is, um, what kind of uh, transatlantic relationship are we going to look at if we if we can't expect that it will be you know the good old days of when we used to be working together, uh, trying to resolve conflicts in the Balkans, etc., and we were really working together, extremely well, um, um, supported by our leaders on on both sides. Um, I don't think that that's going to be, uh, you know, we're not gonna have the deja vu. It's going to be a new kind of relationship. I, and I, I wonder whether you could reflect a little bit on, on what kind of situation you would expect to develop if and when the Trump phenomenon may be over and uh, somebody else will, uh, will, will be there. And my question to uh, Daniela, And I'll I'll ask it right now, so you can think about it for a minute or two. Um, Is is this? You are right. There has never been, and I've, you know, I before I took over took the responsibility in Munich. I think I I must have participated in Munich for the better part of, of almost two decades before that. And I, and Karl, has been there for decades even before. I do not recall a moment where anyone, German leader, American leader, anyone else, ever got a standing ovation in Munich. So this was a unique event. Yes, very good. However, let's face it, the real questions that we have and the real reasons for tensions we have within the EU and with the United States have not been really answered or resolved by the Merkel speech. The gas and pipeline question, no movement. The uh, trade imbalance issue, I don't see any solution to that. The defense expenditure, uh, uh, burden-sharing issue, uh, not resolved, and I could uh, lengthen the list, of course. It would include Iran, it would include Ukraine, etc. Et cetera. Um, and let me, so I, I'm interested in, in uh, In your view, what what do you think should now happen either in the German government, by the German government, or at the European level, let's say, after the constitution of of the next European Commission, etc.? Let me give you one example. Chancellor Merkel herself and uh, leading members of her government, including the foreign minister and his predecessors, have spoken out, and I applaud that, because I've been an advocate of that for years now, uh, that in order for the European Union to speak with one voice, we've got to abandon you know, the consensus or unanimity uh, principle in foreign policy decision-making. We had a recent debacle where just because one country had a different view, we couldn't even get our act together on what our position should be on Venezuela. You know, which is probably not the single most tr- strategic challenge for, for, for Europe, but it's an important question. And here again, we, we were divided and, and, and uncertain. So, you know, um, Merkel, Heiko Maas, Sigma Gabriel have said, yes, we should introduce um, in some shape or form qualified majority voting into the decision-making process of the European Union. They make speeches about it, but where is the concrete proposal in Brussels by the German government or by the German ge- government plus other governments to actually start this now? Um, I, I see only speeches. I see no action. So that's my question to you. Nick?
2: Welcome. Thank you. Um, I first want to thank uh, and congratulate Daniela on her highly intelligent, <coughs> substantive Uh, presentation, and the elegance with which she gave that presentation in the English language. And I'm acutely aware of something that I wanted to point out and just admit. I assume that 99% of the people here are either fluent German speakers or they've acquired the German language. One of the great failures of my life is that I do not speak German. You all could be having a discussion in German were it not for me. So apologies to Henrik and the school, and congratulations to you. Um, Two points to answer Wolfgang's very good question. What did Joe Biden mean by, we will be back? As I understood it, and uh, he spoke, and then I I interviewed him on stage, mainly about Russia and NATO. I didn't ask him about whether he's gonna run for president (laughs) or, or American politics. But as I understood it, Wolfgang, I think he was making two points. Number one, we have a majority in the United States of America that does not agree with what the president is doing domestically or in foreign policy. It is in every poll and both of those sectors. We have a majority. We will be back in 2020. and my own view, and I'm not not an expert on politics, per se, I think about foreign policy. If it's Trump versus a centrist Democrat who has someone with him in the race who is tied to the liberal Democrats, The Democrats will win that. If it's Trump, a Democrat, and a third-party independent candidate, that favors President Trump. So as a Democrat, I wanna see a two-person race, a man or a woman, contest Donald Trump, and I'll take our odds. That's the political end of it. The second part of it is, I think what he really meant is, the majority of Americans believe in NATO, and the EU, and trade, and legal immigration, and logic and science, which unfortunately, we now have to argue in the United States. Do you believe in enlightenment values on the issue of climate change? We have to have that argument. And if we can mobilize that majority, then America can return to the policies that we've had. Now, a lot of people have asked me, even at Munich and elsewhere in Europe, but isn't Trump? Trump is not the cause, some people say. He's actually a symptom. This is what the American people really believe. I don't agree with that. I don't, I don't agree with that. There is a minority who, who agrees with Trump. They're at about 30 to 30 percent of the 5 percent of the people polled, but nowhere near the majority. And so I think we just have to mobilize Americans who believe that we live in the 21st century and therefore we have to engage with the rest of the world. But Wolfgang is right. We can't just go back to the NATO of 1970 or even the NATO of German unification in the autumn of 1990, we have to build a new NATO, and that was in the Vice President's speech, Biden's speech, not Pence's speech. Biden's speech said we have to kind of imagine a future NATO that will look different than the old NATO, but it will be us working together across the Atlantic. I take some comfort in that. Great, thank you, Daniel.
3: So first of all, I agree with your analysis that in Merkel's speech, there was no change of position, except for maybe on one issue. And there she followed on the defense minister, who spoke the day before. And that is that both she and Ursula von der Leyen said, we are willing to review, or she said, we need an agreement on arms export rules. That is big although it sounds technical. It's a huge political discussion in Germany. And while both of them speak for the Christian Democrat Party, the coalition partner is very likely to be of a very different opinion, and the opposition as well. Now, why is this important? Why would she say that? I think that was one of the strong signals to France, because in the weeds of PESCO and bilateral defence cooperation, the very different arms export rules, and in particular German unilateralism in the implementation of the national rules, has created big, big tensions. And so I would say, you know, this was not a big proposal, but it was a signal. And I believe it was very well heard in France. Not saying it's going to be, and Andreas Nick is nodding as a parliamentarian in the German Bundestag, it's not going to be easy to change anything, and it's a very Difficult, ethical, economic, in all dimensions complicated debate we will be having. But the truth of the matter is, if we want to move forward with defense industrial integration and cooperation in Europe, we need joint rules. And for this, also from the German perspective, something we'll have to give. Now, this is a recurrent theme in Berlin for I would say, you know, probably for seven, eight years, since The big moment was when the sovereign debt and banking crisis hit Greece. German German policy towards the EU came under pressure. In the beginning, there was, I would say, kind of mental isolationism. We didn't really want to hear the criticism. But at some point, German policymakers realized, ooh, we need to do something to get the others, to take the others along. We need to give something. And I think we're still there we are not sure what we want to give. There has been a change of certain positions on defense, on the Eurozone, et cetera, et cetera, but the big challenge, and that Merkel didn't indeed say, what are we changing to get out of this deadlock situation we are in? Now, there is a proposal, and you mentioned this, and I'm happy to comment on it, the question of qualified majority voting for foreign policy decisions. A, absolutely important and useful, be very difficult to achieve, because in order to give up unanimity, you have to have unanimity, right? And if you don't want a majority vote, you will not vote for the change of rules, very easy. Now, then there's a way to forge a package deal or to buy someone. I mean, the question is at this point in time, what could that package possibly be? If we want to stay in the field of foreign and security policy, I think there are several issues on the table which merit debate. One is the question of how does the EU take decisions. And in my view, it's unlikely that we will actually change those rules. So the default option will be that smaller groups will work together and do their thing. It would be a pity, but it would be pragmatic. So that scenario in itself could could exert some pressure, because everyone wants to rather have it in the EU framework than have it between the larger member states to be true. Now, the other questions, and there again, there is a big French ask around. It is to move ahead with something of a security solidarity in the EU. And that is that came up when France evoked Article 42.7, which is a kind of European solidarity clause, to put it in very simple terms, when France got attacked by terrorists on its own territory. And that was a very interesting move, because it brought us a debate about European solidarity, which then led to the question of European cooperation and burden sharing, and now goes as far as European, the ability for the EU to actually act together strategically. And that's where the decision-making mechanism comes in. Because what can be safely said at this point We will never simply agree among the 27. There will always be different points of views. So there needs to be pragmatism. In my view, yes, let's try to maintain this in the EU institutional framework and argue and move towards a majority rule. But of course, at some point, you have to do more than deliver a speech. You have to make a concrete proposal and actually suggest, in my view, a package deal. Thank
1: you. Great, thank you very much. Uh, I think that's, these are very, very important issues. Now, we have uh, uh, about 20 minutes for questions. Uh, if you want to ask a question, do me a favor and identify yourself briefly. And also, please indicate whether you ask a question of both panelists or of just one. And the tradition here for me and for, for the school has been that the first question goes, of course, to one of the students. And are you a student? You look like one. You could be. You... Okay, that, that, that doesn't qualify. Who is the stu- student at Hertie? The gentleman over there, please.
0: <clears throat> Hello, my name is Maximilian Gerke. I'm an international affairs student here at Hertie. And I have a question to um, Ms. Schwarzer, because um, Ambassador Burns said, um echoed Mr. Biden we will be back, and you, Ms. Schwarzer, pointed out that um, European defense, or European, uh, common European uh, security policy, might take at least 10, 15 years. And my question to you is, if you were to to write a policy paper, and there was a header saying policy implications, what would you recommend? What do we do in the meantime, until either America is back as the leader of the Western world, or until we stand on our own feet? Thank you. Good question.
3: Well, I would say, make ourselves as interesting as possible to the United States. (laughs) Meaning, we need to think through what this administration, which we don't like, wants, and in which points it may actually be right. And if you look at the uh, paper that the European Commission put forward on WTO reform, it's quite remarkable. Because it works works itself through all the points of criticism that one can guess the Trump administration has as to the functioning of the WTO. And I believe that's exactly the right thing to do. So take those points seriously. You don't have to agree with everything. But then when we put forward our reform proposal, relate to this. As crazy as the way may be in which it is put forward, take it as a position. And work with it. Don't ignore it and just do your own thing. We won't get anywhere. Now, I heard people who were involved in drafting this paper who were in D.C., that they were taken seriously by the people who negotiate trade deals with the EU on the U.S. side. Doesn't mean the president is convinced, but at least there is very close dialogue, and that's good to do. On defense, um, we have to deliver. And, you know, when I said there's a 15 maybe a 15-year horizon, that means until we can, we have the capabilities to practically be operational without the US in certain ways. But before that, we can do a lot. First of all, we should never, ever let any doubts on the DC side harden that we, on our side, don't commit to NATO. And that's why I believe the 2% debate, and again, the goal may be debatable, and the question what you do with it, All that is an important discussion. But if we undermine our own credibility, there will be a reaction. The other point is, and I briefly touched upon this, this whole debate on strategic autonomy. I think the term in itself is very ill-chosen. Because it's a long-term goal, but we use it as if it is something we are working on to deliver tomorrow. And I have heard people who are very engaged in transatlantic relations on the U.S. side, not part of the Trump administration, who tell me this term makes it harder for them in D.C. to make the case for close engagement with Europeans, because simply there are so many stories told about the European ambition turning away from the U.S., turning the back on D.C. So those would be my pieces of... A few points of policy
2: advice. Nick? I'll just say one word, and that is that I'm one of those people who argues that the United States should be supporting the European Union and its defense and military plans, but strategic autonomy doesn't work well in the English language in Trump's Washington. I would just say to the student, uh, and thank you for your question, there is a policy paper that we presented at Munich. <laughs> and um, it is called NATO at 70, An Alliance in Crisis. You can just uh, you can go into the Harvard Kennedy World School website. And here it is. Thank you, Henrik. <laughs> this is the copy. And this is Ambassador Doug Lute and myself. We're both former US ambassadors to NATO. This paper says that the greatest challenge facing NATO is an American president who doesn't believe in NATO, but that the second greatest challenge is Germany spending 1.24% of its gross domestic product on defense. And that as the largest and most successful economy in Europe, Germany, and the leader in many ways, Germany has to do better between now and
1: 2024. Great. Now, uh, let's cluster two or three or four questions, because we're going to be running out of uh, time rather quickly. So uh, I go back to the gentleman who studies, unfortunately, at a different school. <laughs> <coughs> and then we'll take a question from the young lady here in the second row. Please.
4: Thank you. I try to keep it as short as possible. My name is Emre Bardo. I study European studies at the Viedrina in Frankfurt Order. I was born in Hungary, lived in Britain, and now I live here in Germany. So I can say I've had the pleasure to experience East, Center, and West when it comes to perspectives on Europe. And I want to come directly to Europe, because as the jumper worn by Mr. Ishing at the security conference demonstrated, the Germans love to talk about Europe and love to talk about the European Union and see themselves as a great supporter of it, which is in itself great. But sometimes I have the feeling that there are a lot of inconsistencies in German policy towards the European Union. I'll give three quick examples. First is- But
1: come to a question if you could. Okay,
4: I'll just give three quick examples. Uh, Defense corporation, refugee politics, and Nord Stream 2. Both of all three topics which are very controversial in the European Union. Isn't it the case that sometimes, given Germany's position on these matters, that Germany is actually better at dividing then uniting Europe.
1: All right. Uh, here, next question. Uh,
5: first of all, uh, many thanks for your outstanding speech. I crossed two border in order to come to this panel today. I am originally from Georgia, but uh, I am working in Sweden and working on my PhD project um, in security field. Uh, so uh, my question is uh, related. Uh, uh, to partly divergent perceptions of streets and security. Uh, Mr. Wolfgang uh, mentioned uh, in his speech that um, there is no mutual understanding of security because on the Munich conference they were talking about on their own security pol- policy. And Ambassador Barnes mentioned that uh, uh, Trump never mentioned about democracy uh, during his presidency. So uh, my PhD is about um, the partly divergent perception of threatened security in European Union, United States, Russia, and Georgia. And I am interested in how do you see the mutual understanding of security, how we have to reach it in order to then contribute towards the mutual security policy in, in, in the world. Thank you.
1: OK. And we'll take a third. Uh, mayb- yeah, the Canadian ambassador has been waving to me uh, for quite a while.
6: The question, I think, to come back to Ambassador Ishinger's uh, angle of question is, to which extent the difficulties we have are linked to President Trump and to which extent it links to something else? Yeah, I think, uh, Mr. Burns, you identified the main problem. It is policy by diktat, policy by um, s- a- a second level of sanctions. Is it only Trump? Is it not also the Congress? that sometimes the Congress are criticizing Trump to not do that enough. My question is, is it only Trump that may uh, punish this country about North Stream 2 with sanctions? Or the Congress also? Or punish Europe because they, they don't want to do what the US wants about Iran? Because if we go this point to uh, attack each other, within the same alliance, the problem we'll have is to dislocate the alliance. And at the end of the day, it will help Russia and other countries that we don't want to help. So that I think, the core of the problem. Is it only Trump? And if it's more than Trump, if it is the Congress, until which it will bring us?
1: Maybe Thank you very much. Maybe we'll uh, start with you, Daniela, responding to the question about Germany dividing rather than uniting. And then I think the other questions were more going to, uh, to Nick.
3: You're right there were moments where Germany adopted policy positions which were not sufficiently coordinated with European partners and that caused reactions and I think there has been quite a learning curve on that one. but the examples you pointed out, for instance, uh, you can also you know you can take energy policy more generally, not only Nord Stream 2 or you pick migration policy. I think the government um, has learned that there were unintended consequences from quick decisions, which I wouldn't say were without a European logic. Even, I guess, the migration decision two years ago had a real European thinking in it, but it divided member states, it divided publics, and uh, the, uh, the political effort to mend that has been very important. And I would go as far as saying on migration, I would say positions now between governments at least some governments, are more aligned than the governments actually succeed to communicate because the impression is still that we stayed where we were two, three years ago and our own position has substantively changed. Now, going forward, I think um, it is absolutely clear that with the political polarisation – within countries and between countries that is growing or has grown over the past years. This task of checking one's own positions against the possible reactions they can get from elsewhere and investing as much political capital as you can in order to build consensus around certain choices is really a big task. And what you can see in practical foreign policy making is that the German government by now invests a lot of energy in bilateral relationships, which it felt it didn't have to do a few years ago. There were even discussions around here in Berlin. Do we still need embassies in EU countries? And now we're in a phase where we definitely need embassies in EU countries. And in some EU countries, we need more staff to actually reach out and talk and do this job of building consensus.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Nick.
2: So um, to the question from the student, I think you're from Georgia, but you're studying in Sweden, as I understood it. Um, This is an important question about institutions. You referred to the book that Wolfgang presented to me at the beginning. One of the great successes of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s into this century was the development of pan-European institutions here in Europe. And you were able to resolve all sorts of problems, including the unification of Germany, the end of communism, the expansion of the EU eastward, because you had the institutions as a buffer. When we were working on problems in East Asia, we actually counseled in the Clinton and Bush administrations the Southeast Asian states, the East Asian countries, look at Europe, develop pan-Asian institutions that can help you deal with big structural problems like border challenges. That is not present in the South China Sea or the East China Sea. Recreating and reviving those institutions here in Europe is important. And then, of course, you have the institutions that include the Canadians and the Americans and many others. And, and, and we need, for instance, to have arms control institutions. I'm worried with the dissolution of the INF Treaty and the emergence of other intermediate range nuclear weapons powers like China and Iran and Pakistan and India. And with New START just ahead of us, it's going to expire in two years, that the work of Willy Brandt, the work of President Johnson and Nixon that started all the way back in the 60s, President Kennedy, all the way forward to establish lower numbers of nuclear weapons, agreed upon rules so that we could be reasonably sure we weren't gonna have an accidental nuclear conflict. Without those agreements, we're, we're back in 1965. So I think there's nothing more urgent than, than your question as, a, as someone who's a young person, as Wolfgang said, you can't go back to 1965. You're gonna to have to create something that's very unique to your century, to this century, as you lead us forward, your generation. And um, I think it's very important that that be one of the things that, that this young generation at the Hurdy School and the Kennedy School undertakes. To the Canadian ambassador, um, one of the things that we Americans have had to learn, and I count myself, Uh, in this category. It's been one of my takeaways from my time in government is we had such incredible power in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and the imbalance of power in the world was such that we often engaged in foreign policy by diktat. And um, in the 21st century, in nearly every way that you measure power, political, economic, military, the gap is narrowing with other countries like China and India and others. So Americans have had to learn a new brand of diplomacy. I think the best practicing president in this new brand was Barack Obama, who understood you just can't order Canada or Germany to do something. That's not how democracies work with each other. And that's why I found, frankly, the Vice Vice President Pence's speech so almost a throwback to another era. And in a positive sense, to answer your question, We have to be careful not to overuse sanctions. If you use them everywhere, you depreciate the currency. But when we talk with each other, Wolfgang and I worked together in 2006, 2007, and 2008 on Kosovo. He was the emissary of the European Union. And we worked together and produced the independence of Kosovo. Earlier than that, the peace in Kosovo and Bosnia that protected the Muslim populations in the 90s. And Germany led. (laughs) on climate change, and the the United States and China engaged with you to produce the Paris Agreement. So I think getting back to multilateralism, working with each other, not by diktat, but by out of respect, we can succeed and do good things.
1: Thank you, Uh, thank you very much, Nick. I'm afraid to say we've run out of time. I promised to the panelists that we would terminate at about 10 minutes to eight. Uh, Let me, before thanking the panelists, Let me offer two brief uh, footnotes. First, I remember when I was political (coughs) director at the end of the 90s, uh, there was a consideration at the time or a suggestion that should we or should we not impose sanctions on China and Pakistan, uh, on on India and Pakistan for having developed um, uh, nuclear weapons. And uh, we had Dr. Henry Kissinger as a guest at a dinner of the political directors at the time preparing a a summit to be held in Scotland. I think it was 98. And uh, Dr. Kissinger said, and I'll never forget this. He said, I have doubts whether we are doing the right thing uh, because as we speak in 98, the United States has imposed sanctions against about half of mankind. Uh, and if we include uh, India and Pakistan, we will go up to about three-fourths, and that is probably not a good idea. Uh, that was my, my first footnote. My second footnote is, very briefly, um, because I'm really fascinated by this question of, you know, what kind of a post-Trump transatlantic Situation will we have? What what will be the challenges? If we had more time here tonight, I think we would need to talk about uh, the difficulties and the opportunities that China represents to us in terms of the question: Is there something achievable that will look and smell like a coordinated approach to China? and the question for ourselves is, can we, can we develop a China policy that contains more than simply the desire to sell automobiles? <laughs> to be a, bit, a little blunt. Uh, so th- these are huge questions that will be on the horizon for the post-Trump era. They'll not be easy. Uh, we've always had crises, uh, Nick, uh, and it's, it would be entirely wrong to think that the Trump era it's the first time in the transatlantic, uh, uh, you know, history of cooperation that we ha- that we've had serious tension. We've always had serious tension, but the, I think the difference is that we had serious tension, but we believed in the same principles. We su- simply had slightly different interpretations of what exactly that meant, and and we have a, a different situation today. Finally. Uh, I do want to say I'm very happy that we have a senior member of the Foreign Relations Committee of the Bundestag here, Andreas Nick. Welcome. I forgot to say welcome uh, at the beginning. And I want to pay tribute, as you did in the beginning, to Karl Kaiser. Because Carl, of course, is, if I may say so, uh, a Daniela's grandfather or a great-grandfather or something <laughs> like this. <laughs> and uh, we're really happy to have you here, Karl. Uh, thank you to both of you. I think we could go on for another hour, but we need to conclude. Thank you for the questions and and the interest, um, and we look forward to having such uh, large audiences for the next series of discussions here at the School. Uh, Herr uh, President uh, Hendrik, thank you very much.
0: Thanks for
3: listening. You can find more on our website at herty-school.org.